Hello, everyone. Welcome to School for Startups Radio. We got a show so cram-packed with excellence, we don't have time for the introduction and all of that. So let's just go ahead and get started. It is Wednesday the 7th, and I hope you're having a fantastic week, getting a lot done and taking some names and all of that kind of stuff. We have two great guests. First up, Pat Dwyer, comedian, change management specialist, he has the best URL ever. You'll never forget it once we tell it to you in a couple of seconds. And we're going to talk about all sorts of things, change, how to be funny, comedy, uh, great wide ranging conversation and that, and, uh, and that, and after that, Lisa Danells will be with us. She is calling in from Switzerland. And we're going to talk about the human edge and HR and AI and all of the things on the table in that space. Got a great show. Let's go ahead and get started with our first guest. His name is Pat Dwyer. He is a professional comedian. He has a new series out, a comedy intensive on how to be funny if you're a speaker or if you are a manager and need to speak in front of the boss and group occasionally and want to mix in something and be a little funnier, he would be the guy to do that. He is a professional speaker himself, mostly on change management and innovation. He started his career in the Peace Corps and almost got killed there. We will ask about that. And then came back and became a professional comedian working at places like Second City and IO Theater and Comedy Sports. It is also, while doing that, very active in the Chicago tech scene at companies like Groupon and Ignite. Pretty impressive. Pat, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Your URL is fantastic. Pat Dwyer was taken.com. I have to ask who the hell is the other Pat Dwyer? You know, I, here's the, here's the irony of this. He is a realtor that lives in Florida. And I, during my early years as a comedian, I decided uh, I had owned patdwyer.com and I sold it because I was very poor and needed to eat. And, um, until this year, I, I just got it back, uh, but I will never get rid of my URL because I love it so much because it, Pat Dwyer is in fact taken.com. <laughs> uh, it's clever, you know, and so it's easy to, it, it stands out and will be remembered more, I think, because of its uniqueness. Well, I've definitely had people tell me that they don't need my business card. I'm hoping that's because they, they thought it was, uh, that it was sticky enough and not that they just genuinely didn't want my business card. <laughs> Well, they are a clutter these days. You get home and then what the hell do you do with them? Yeah, you make them into a small fire. Yeah, that's what I do with them. Uh, I have stacks of them that I don't know what to do. So I hear you can make houses from them. Uh, stack them up over time. Use a little tape glue. It's a mm. good time. High standard you're going for there. Yeah, I mean, it's always high standard with me. Come on now. All right. So how did you almost get killed in the Peace Corps? That seems, you know, oxymoronic peace, sure. die, not, you know, shouldn't be in the story. Admittedly, I think that killed is maybe a little bit misleading only because it was more like died. I almost died in Peace Corps. Um, I got, well, I was in Mauritania, which is in West Africa. 
and it is the Sahara Desert. And I grew up in Boston. My little New England body was not able to take the heat. And then on top of that, I got dysentery a couple times in a row, and I ended up losing about 60 pounds in a month and a half. I started to lose motor function a little bit here and there. Um, but I, I, because of the dysentery, I just couldn't get out of uh, uh, the health scare part of this world. Um, but ironically, it's how it led me to comedy of all things, which is just the weirdest path. But yeah, what's led so me to funny comedy. about that? So, you know, well, that- honestly, <laughs> that's a great, great question. I was in the infirmary, uh, finally in the infirmary and, and starting to uh, get a little bit more fluid in my system. And a friend of mine noticed that I was making everybody in the infirmary laugh and all the Peace Corps volunteers that were there. And then more and more Peace Corps volunteers in our country started to come to the infirmary to visit me. And I started making everybody laugh more and more. And I was giggling. And uh, my friend said, you know, you're, you're making everybody laugh. If you want to actually serve the world and be, you know, maybe do a little bit bigger than yourself, maybe you should think about comedy. Because uh, honestly, Jim, I was on the fast track to the State Department. That's all I wanted. I wanted to work internationally uh, uh, in government. But he put this idea in my brain. And when I got back from the Peace Corps, when I got uh, sent home, I packed a duffel bag and a backpack and I walked up and moved to Chicago to all try right. to do and, comedy. And then how do you launch a comedy career? How do you become a famous comedian? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, how do you launch your career Pat? so <laughs> uh for me Tell us what I, you did <laughs> i started taking classes at uh second city up in chicago uh second city is the well for lack of a better term i mean they're they're a massive institution for comedy in the country so we've all heard uh, usually, of it. yeah yeah the groundlings second city things like that um so i started taking classes at second city just to see where it would go uh and Next thing you know, here, here we find ourselves 20 years later. I worked for Second City for a while. I, I worked for um, some of the other big guys in Chicago, IO Theater, as you said before, Comedy Sports, which has locations all over the country, and then toured for a while with a group called Mission Improbable, and now I've transitioned to speaking, which is just, just the best. It is just the best, and it's kind of a beautiful uh, convalescence of everything that I've done up to this point, which has been a real fulfilling move. And what are the topics that you talk about? You obviously I introduced you as innovation and change and uh, all of that, but what is the exact title and give us a thesis? Sure. Uh, the big one that I spend a lot of time on is called chaotic goodness. And really what this comes down to is change in the moment in real time and how we deal with that fluidly. So chaotic goodness, you know, there is chaos all around us. I mean, gosh, the last, what, four years is a great example of how ridiculous the world can be and what it will throw at us and how we have to be able to pivot on a dime. So I use my lessons and my teachings and my learnings from places like the second city, like comedy sports, uh, like IO to help people in business, in life, 
deal with change a little bit better. And so when I am speaking, we do, we do a good amount of exercises because I don't want to sit through any of this crud and I wouldn't expect anybody else to either. <laughs> so we, we play and we goof around and we do some exercises that are on our feet and helping people kind of live out what we're talking about so that they can actually take it forward with them. It's a real blast. All right. And, uh, how do you sell that? So walk us through the, uh, before you even get hired process and then talk to us about the talking to the agents and then sure. how do you actually get ready for an event? So talk to us about everything that happens prior to going on stage. Sure. Well, from the initial call, or I, I don't like calling right away. You like to send an email first because uh, today is a different age. But I do like getting on Zoom or on the phone as quickly as we can because I'm a person and I like to be a person and I like to speak with people. And I like that we can create real relationships in that way. So I hop on the phone eventually and we'll talk through uh, what their business is up against and what they need and what their organization or their association is dealing with in real time. And then we talk about how these skills help people move quicker through their day and quicker through their life. So for me, the real metricy that, that ends up uh, working is the wrong word, uh, that ends up creating a larger conversation is that for even if we were to debase everything that I do to retention and everything and all the conversations that we can have, we debase it to retention which again, actively not a debasement. But if we were to debase it to retention, it's forty dollars to $140,000 to retain somebody and retrain somebody, right? Depends on so, the job. Yeah, I'll go with that stat, sure. Yeah, right. So if, if I can keep one person in their seat for an extra six months to a year, we're, we're already, we're already above board. We're already helping their organization move forward. So a lot of what I do is help people find a way to move forward in a way that helps them and helps their organizations flourish. So that's, that's where that goes. Now, in regards to me arriving and things like that, we take care of all that stuff. We talk about travel. We talk about me getting there. We talk about how I stay overnight or if need be. Uh, we, don't, we don't care about you that. Know, all those Pat, stuff. Pat, right. That's uh, what I'm it, saying. That's, that's nothing. logistics. Right. What do you do to uh, change your presentation based on what you've learned? And I thought that it was really interesting. You said that the first thing in the question or the Skype call that you have, the introductory call, is you learning about them, which is great, of course, fantastic yeah. sales. But then how does that change your presentation or do you just go up there and do the same presentation every time? No, every, every, I am an extension of the team that is there. That's my job because what we know from HR is that I can say the exact same thing the companies have been saying or the individual has been saying, but people hear me because I'm different because I'm not something they hear every day. It's a different musicality. It's a different way of speaking. So I make sure that I am saying what I need to say and helping them in the way that, that I do, but also uh, coloring that uh, in little bits and pieces throughout my presentation with what they're dealing with. And if that is, uh, you know, something as simple as somebody's name in the organization, or if it's saying y'all have been getting smoked, but let me tell you why, based on what I learned, is that correct? 
yeah, great, cool, let's talk about that. And then doing that and making it part of my presentation as if it is a larger part of my presentation. That's cool. I like that. Uh, y'all have been getting smoked and let's talk about that. So that, that yeah. does work out, uh, very well. All right. So I hire you. We are about to, uh, merge two groups, two companies that are going to merge, uh, Pat, and we're going to hire you to break the news to everybody at that conference we're having in Chicago at Lake point. And so, uh, it's going to be gorgeous and we need you to help break the news to everybody. So how do we get ready to have this massive change as an organization? How do I get ready for change? Well, let's talk beyond that. Let's move a step beyond the actual moment of change. Cause that's not where I sit the best for an organization. What I do is the moment after when we need to come together, when we need to be one team, when we need to find a place to move forward collectively. So if you are the one, like you would say, let's say, Jim, you're the guy that makes the announcement, right? Yeah, that's me. And I'm going to have you Great. there standing next to me, help defend me. Great. So then you and I then bring upon the group an opportunity for them to find collective moments, collective meaning. So we create an activity for them or we create an opportunity for them to come together and bond in that moment. And if that is an improv exercise that I've done for years, which we, <laughs> I never use the word improv because people freak out. But if we do an exercise together that gets them bonded in that moment and understand that collective fear that they all are currently experiencing, it helps them immediately move together and immediately progress faster through change. All right. Is that useful? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yes. There you go. All right. How do I inject some funny into that guy I was talking about in the introduction, mid-level manager trying to make vice president, right? He has to speak once a month to the entire company of a hundred people. It's the most boring thing on ever, all time. It's just dry stats that he has to report on the Milwaukee office did 12% better. Congratulations, Milwaukee. He wants to get funny and make that better. So he gets to vice president. How do we help that person, Pat? Absolutely. Well, the, I think that is more a matter of putting it on your audience. So there's a thing, and there's a German theater that we call breaking the fourth wall. Have you heard of this, Jim? You yes. This? Great. So breaking the fourth wall, for those who might be listening that don't know, it is the fourth wall in theater is the, the line between the stage and the audience that should be an imaginary wall if you were to be watching a play. So it would be, it would, you know, in normal circumstances have paintings on it and a door, perhaps windows, things like that. But we make that disappear now. Uh, not unlike certain theater events like, oh gosh, I even want to say the word Cats the Musical. Uh, Cats the Musical is very famous because, well, it's Cats the Musical, but also because it had the junkyard set surrounded the audience and the cats come out of the audience at the beginning. So from an audience perspective, you do not know at any point in time if you are in the junkyard or if you're out of it, if you're a watcher or if you're a participant. From 
a mid-level manager trying to engage that audience and trying to engage his workers and make that something that they can ingest in a way that is even remotely entertaining for them, the number one thing to do is to break that fourth wall. And by that, I mean, you find somebody in the back of the house, you say something that is a general uh, piece of advice or a general note, or you talk about somebody's flowery shirt. If perhaps this event is happening in Hawaii, let's really go, let's really go hard, Jim, and just suggest it's happening in Hawaii. Now we're, we're wearing these Hawaiian shirts. Somebody says, well, I really like your Hawaiian shirt. You go, Oh yeah. Steve back in the backpack, as you guys can see, he's got a really great shirt from that moment on. Your audience does not know where the front of the stage and the back of the stage is. And they will inevitably be more engaged, which will inevitably create opportunities of shared emotion, which will create laughter and will create humor every single time. So I went to University of Hawaii, Pat, and collect Hawaiian shirts. Uh, I collect (laughs) collections. I have many collections, and one of them is Hawaiian shirts. The, The Ren Spooner Hawaiian shirt is interesting uh for two reasons. Pat, number one, it the when he started the company, he took normal fabric, you know, Hawaiian fabric, and no one would buy it because it looked too new. And so he figured out he would reverse the fabric and sell the back of the fabric as the you know, the front of the shirt, as the part, you know, the front fabric. Wow. And so it looked faded and old, and then it sold like gangbusters. And now he is also one of the first guys to figure out that there was a seasonality to his shirts. So he started the Santa shirt early, you know, in the fifties, I think, but he also realized that he would sell a shirt for a year and then take it off the market and then come out with a new shirt and then take it off the market. And so because of all of this, it's the world's most collectible, uh, clothing, line and so there's a huge you know there's a competition for collecting every year and all of this craziness and so anyway i'm part of that stupidity uh and boy could that be fun made fun of Uh, i could i'm already thinking fun of the silliness to tease me about aren't you i I mean china english china amari okay well i mean if you if you were to have I mean, if you were to have the audacity to serve me something off your English China whilst wearing your shirt, while skating upon a series of matchbox cars, I mean, this isn't funny anymore. This is a talent. So I'm on board, man. Let's do this thing. That sounds great. I remember when I was a kid, my father arranged tickets to go up to New York and see cats. And we were on the front row and we were sitting there ready for the show to get started. And I realized all of a sudden that something, my foot was being messed with. And I looked down and there was one of the actors was untying my shoe and playing with my shoelaces. And, uh, it was an incredible example of breaking the fourth wall. So, uh, now, am I allowed to tease Steve? How do I? So once I've broken that barrier, right? How do I then take that to the next level and use it again and again? Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to you talking about the potential or the uh, idea of teasing Steve. Um, the reason I would well, never. That, suggest how do I that. go to number two? How do I get back to oh, Steve? 
just move on back to see. Well, Steve is going to come up a whole bunch. Steve becomes your Patsy at that point. Patsy is Patsy sounds way worse than it means to be, but it 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 is your opportunity to remind them, and Steve becomes your your mascot, your play, your opportunity to check in. If you say a stat that seemed long winded, you look at Steve and you go, "Right, Steve." Yeah, Steve's got me. Steve's still on board. And then Steve becomes a character that is or isn't interacting with you directly. And truthfully, you don't really want Steve to interact with you that much because it will detract from what is happening. But referencing the emotion of the of what is happening and the emotion that they may be feeling because of that as an audience is a great way to use Steve over and over again so that you can help them journey through the material with you. This all sounds very artistic and lofty. Now I'm using journey and emotion and things like that, but it does help the audience feel what is going on and transition through the information with you in that way. So that it is then much more sticky. It's much more pliable. It helps them uh, uh, keep that information and make it their own. All right. So Pat, I want to ask, Maybe an improv question, but how do I, uh, on, on the spot, be funny? How do I, uh, use an improv technique to make uh, the audience laugh? And while you think of your answer, I want to give you my best be funny tip and get your response to this and see, uh, if we can improve upon it. Every once in a while, I will randomly say something funny and I always, and this is one of the reasons try to somehow record every presentation. If it's just on my phone or video or whatever, there's always a use for it. And if I say something funny once I try to use that, uh, captured video or just audio or whatever, and try to tell that joke again, or see if I can be spontaneous in the exact same way. Again, I can improv in the exact same way again. And so over the time, over the years, I've collected here are 10 ways that I can be funny. And I use all of them in a perfect presentation. And that works out pretty well, you know, by copying myself and faking the spontaneity of it. And the example I, I can give is, I start one of my presentations with a, a story about getting of a, uh, a watch when I was 12 or 13 years old. And the reason I wanted a watch is very sad and it's a sad story, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, and then I make fun of the audience and it's interesting. I'm using your technique of breaking the fourth wall. I make fun of the audience for not being more sympathetic and tease the <laughs> audience. You're not, you don't even care about my pain. Do you? I'm up here crying and you're not doing a single thing to help, you know? And so I get a good laugh out of that. And I've used that technique many times now. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And then you give me an improv technique to be funny. Well, first and foremost, let's talk about why that's working. Why does breaking the fourth wall in that space work for you? Do you know? Uh, well, you know, that's the, one of the, uh, uh, I thought of that because of what you taught us earlier, that that's a good thing to do. Um, I don't know the, the mechanics behind why it works. I've just discovered that it does. Why does it that's, work? Absolutely. Well, here's the fun thing about comedy. It is math. It is very mathematical, just like music. Music is based in math. So is comedy. Now, 
when you tell this story and you say to them, you're not being sympathetic enough, what you're doing is you're creating a moment that you are human. You're breaking that fourth wall and you're creating a space of comedy because, well, I'll say this. There are a few reasons why we know people laugh. One of those reasons is surprise. You know, you're going down one direction. You immediately switch that direction right? Yep. or you skip a step. People will laugh because of that surprise. What you're doing is you're getting to them before they have an opportunity to get there themselves. So, oh, you're not being sympathetic enough. I am now human because I feel like you should be feeling something more. Your audacity to suggest that they're not there is that moment of surprise. And then they laugh. So regarding an improv technique versus what you're talking about, I, I, I hate to correct you in such a fashion, but like, if this is actually stand-up. What you're talking about is stand-up. And that and the stand-up world is a little bit different from improv because it's and I certainly every use, time, right? Well, yeah, it's in a way, but it's also how you work your material. So when I was in Chicago, I did sketch comedy also almost as much as I did improv comedy. And sketch comedy is worked. You know, we find those moments, those things that work and you refine them and you tweak them. And I love the game of that. I love finding those little moments and exploiting them and making them more and making them bigger. And that is really what you're talking about is that testing and retesting and the finite work that is the math of this. If one plus one equals two, what is one plus three equal? And I'll test that out and see where that goes and then see if it's more or less of a value than the first equation I did. And then you keep evolving that material from an improv perspective. And this is something that I do on stage that is very difficult to replicate is I don't let little moments pass. And I think we have those opportunities. For instance, if you're going, if we were to go to back to that example of Steve, Steve's in the back. When you come to him, every time you go, yeah, right, Steve, you get that. He starts to get nervous and you don't let that go. And you find those small moments, those little gifts, those little points that you can then use over and over again to make this bigger and let everybody feel what's going on at the same time. That's where improv can take over when you don't allow little moments to be blown past versus stand up and the ideals of stand up, which is creating a space where you are in control, even though you don't know you're in control or I'm sorry, even though the audience doesn't know you are in control with improv, you're generally not in control, but you are exploiting the moments that make it seem as though you are in control. Excellent. I love it. I love having you break down comedy in a technical way as you would, you know, in a comedy class, I guess, with a professional comedian who's also thought about the mechanics, you know, I've never thought about the mechanics and to hear you talk about it. Fascinating. You have a comedy intensive to tell us about. I do. Yeah. We have started a comedy intensive, mostly with speakers or people who are in front of groups to speak. And we, what we do is break down those rules of comedy. We break down that math. We break down this craft of comedy so that they can use it in any way that they need to. More importantly, uh, they also get time with me on a one-on-one way to 
work through whatever they have as a speech or whatever they are doing from a speaking perspective so that we can help them uh, better. If it is comedy, if it is structure, if it is just getting them to a place where the audience is more engaged, that's what we use that time for. It's a real, I, I absolutely love it. I'm having a blast every time we do this, having people uh, see that comedy is a craft and see the way to use comedy, but also just to have that time with individuals to really help them make their stuff better. It's just, it's just a gift. Absolute gift. How do we find out more? Follow online, sign up. Sure. So, uh, Pat Dwyer was taken.com is the best way to find me, but you can go to a, uh, click at the link at the top for the SCI, the speakers comedy intensive SCI like science. But if you were in high school, you know how you abbreviate it to SCI. So it's just like that. So find that link. And then uh, all the intake stuff is right there. You fill out the form and we'll get you in at some point. Fantastic. Depending upon capacity, you know, (laughs) thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, uh, thank you uh, for being with us. Great stuff. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it very much. And we'll be right back with Lisa Donnells. She's going to talk about the human edge advantage. We will be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to continue the show with our next guest. Please welcome Lisa Donnells. She is author of a new book called The Human Edge Advantage, Mastering the Art of Being All In. She is founder and executive director of a company called Human Edge, where she is an executive uh, consultant and coach. She works with some amazing companies like Visa and Novartis. And actually lives in Switzerland now because she was working with Novartis, but now has been out on her own for the last seven years. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you today. All right. The human edge. That's interesting word choice right now as we all figure out that AI is smarter than us. Uh, (laughs) It's not funny, though, Lisa. They're going to kill us all. It is funny. No, it is funny, and the reason I'm laughing is because there were many bottles of wine to come up with that name of the of the company as well as the Human Edge Advantage. And the reason being is um, that when we came up, when my when my my partner and I came up with the name Human Edge, we really felt that during the time period, and this was pre AI, right? As you can imagine, we really felt that companies were the the kind of not allowing people to really get their full breath, that they were, they were doing things like, you know, the way they hired people or the way they fired people, they weren't really treating them with respect. Um, and so that was really troublesome from us because as HR professionals, um, both in our whole career, we really felt that HR needed to be the shepherd. And there were some kind of foundational unwritten rules that were in place that were being broken left and right. So I'll give you one, for example, um, it used to be in the United States that in companies that after, before, right, right up to Thanksgiving, you, you could let people go. That's okay. But at, between Thanksgiving and, and New Year, that was like sacred. You don't do that to people during the holiday season. And that started to change very, very rapidly because the financial people just went, well, we need to get them off the books by the end of the year. So there was this dehumanization that started to happen. 
And then the word edge was really about how do we help companies really look at things from a more objective, analytical perspective, and how do we give the employees the edge that they need? So even with AI, and there's been amazing breakthroughs just in the last two or three months, you know, how do we allow people to use that AI to create that edge that they have? And not at the same time, not, not dehumanizing, because that's what we have to be really careful in this age. We can't lose our humanness because it makes us so special. All right. So what's the thesis, Lisa? In terms of for the book, yes. the thesis. Yeah, so I would say there are a couple of key, really important points. The first one is the power dynamic in, in the world is shifting. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we've been so accustomed to this power over, meaning few people hold power, and then we have to dovetail to the people who have to have power. And that whole model is shifting with social media, with um, kind of spiritual breakthroughs, that people are starting to realize that they can self-author their life. And when that happens, then leaders need to show up in a different way because people don't need to be policed anymore and they don't have to have their work managed step by step. They want the creativity and they want the foundation um, to be able to do that on their own. So that's one foundation. The other foundation of the book is really around, well, if that needs to take place, right, leaders need to share power. Well, in order to share power, the employees need to take power. And we need to step into our personal power in order to do that. And a lot of people are afraid. So the leaders I work with say, you know, I sit in a room and I ask people for ideas and I get nothing. And I go, oh, that's interesting. Right? And the reason it's interesting is the dynamic is people need to feel comfortable being able to alter their own life. And that's not always comfortable for people. So we have to help people step into that place. Um, the other thing I would say that's a, a real important tenet for the book is this notion that we're all connected. And I'm not just talking about the emotional connection between people. I'm talking about that the world we live in is so interconnected that when we understand how things are connected, then we can come up with so many more possibilities. Um, and then the last thing I would say is this notion around if we really want people to be creative and innovative, and a lot of companies are talking about diversity and inclusion. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if we as leaders create the space for people to play and have fun. Because if we don't do that, they're not going to show up that way. They're going to be order takers and just do what we say. And that doesn't make for so much fun at work. So I would say those are the big, those are the big umbrella areas. All right. So I hate to do this, but I, I feel compelled to who's to blame, or I know you're going to say no one's to blame, but someone is not doing this right. Is it the employer not making the employee comfortable? Is the employee demanding too much? Uh, is HR failing? You said HR has to act as a shepherd. Uh, I've never had a good HR experience in my life, not one. Yeah, you're not the only one. I, I don't. I think it's it's not about failing. I think it's about evolution. I think the world is evolving and we're changing and growing. And then in our the way we change and the way we want. So, for example, empathy is the new currency at work. You know, if you look at the surveys that have come out in the research, employees want a more caring, a employee experience that is meaningful for them. 
And I think the, the, as people have become, I think what you start to see is it used to be, I came, I did a job, I left and people are much more, they're much more educated today. The the workforce has changed. And I think because that, it means that leadership has to change and they've both been evolving at the same time. And leaders, if I asked you 10 years ago, if leaders were willing to give up power I would or share power, I would say, no way. They held on to it at every last breath. But now if you ask them, do they want to share power? The answer is yes. And the reason being is there's so much information coming at them every day. They can't know everything. So that has shifted their perspective to rely on their staff a lot more. But that container in which we've all grown up with in the workplace has to shift. So now the employees need also some type of training, which is one of the things we provide at Human Edge, is how do they step into their personal power? How do they take off their masks and step forward? And I think that, and then HR, of course, should be supporting that process uh, in organizations. So I think it's more of an evolution than is someone doing something right or wrong. So how do employees step into their power? Yeah, so there's a couple things that are super important. Uh, one is they really need to understand what they care about, what is, what, what is meaningful for them in the workplace. So that is about them understanding their own purpose. And it doesn't have to be a massive purpose, but it's something that is meaningful to them. The other thing that's super important is they need to master their emotions. They need to be able to speak up and say, no, this doesn't feel good. This is really what I want. So this emotional mastery. And one of the things we're seeing both in leaders and employees is this mental mastery. So this mental mastery is really around, can you quiet your mind? And can you, do you know what you're thinking about? Because if we look at the world around us, information is coming at us left and right. And it's hard for us to be present with other people. We're really, we're, I mean, people are checking their, their emails every four minutes. If you look at um, the notifications that are popping in every second. So that's an important part that needs to be mastered. And then the other thing is this sense of self-awareness. Like if you really want to be in your personal power, you need to really ratchet up self-awareness. And if you look at Tasha Yurek's work, she did a big study on self-awareness. Only about 10 to 15% of the population she looked at has self-awareness. So there's a massive gap. What do you mean by self-awareness? Define that. Lisa, if only 10% are, what is? 10 to 15%. So self-awareness is two parts to it. One is, do you understand your own strengths and areas of development, your understanding of your own emotions and feelings. Can you articulate that? And the second part of self-awareness is your ability to understand your impact on others. So a lot of the the time, Jim, our intent and impact do not match. Right, of course. I see that in my personal life all the time. (laughs) All of us, right? And, and that's where, when we have greater self-awareness, then when we know what we bring to the table, right, from a strength perspective, then we can find work opportunities that better match that. And when we're not, when we don't know how our impact on other people lands, then, you know, people can be, people then may not trust us as much. Not that that's our intention, but that's the out, output of it. So that's why cultivating the self-awareness is so critical for personal power. And then when you can understand, I think this is another key component of personal power, 
is that we have to let go of victimhood, right? So if you're in your personal power and you're authoring your life, that means you create the good and the bad. So we have to let go of, oh, that person did that because of this. Because we love to take credit for the things that go well. But when things don't go well in our life, it was somebody else. So we have to take ownership to say, hey, I created everything. And when we, when we become victims, we, we, we give away our power. Lisa, let's go back to the title of the book for a second. Actually, the subtitle, The Art yeah. of Being All In. Uh, what is all in? I thought we were not supposed to be all in. I'm supposed to be a hundred percent a daddy and a hundred percent an employee and a hundred percent a husband. Um, especially with the Gen Z people and the quiet quitting and the, uh, what are the, what are they doing on Monday where they fake to work on Monday? They have a name for that now too. I don't remember that one. Uh, that I don't know, but I would love to. I would love to hear about that. But when we talk about all in, when my purpose and values match to what I do in work, then I am going to have a higher level of commitment and be all in. And the other thing that I think is really important. So that first part of being all in is connecting to self, stepping into your personal power. Because when you're there, you you're authoring your life. And when you're authoring your life, it means you're much more engaged. The second one is this notion of connecting to others. Right, this authentic connection. So right now when I wrote the book, one of the things that I came across that it was it was quite shocking was that we're going through a loneliness epidemic. So if you look around the world, about 33% of the population um, feels lonely. So suicide rates have come up. Depression rates have come up. So we, we and, and of course, COVID has not helped us being out of the office. So we need to find a place of real authentic connection. And we usually spend more time at work than we spend any other place. So organizations have to cultivate this. Leaders have to cultivate this. And then the last piece around this all in is really about using your creative power. So if we're altering our lives, it means we're also having fun at work, which means we're building off each other's ideas to create new things that neither one of us would have dreamed. And when we can do that, people are going to be all in because they're going to be so excited because when you create something that you never dreamed of, that's different. There's just, you're full of energy. But if you ask people, how many people have had an experience like that? It would be few in numbers. And that was one of the reasons I wrote the book because I felt like there is a new frontier of leadership that's needed. That the old way of leadership is not enough to suffice what these new generations want what's required lisa the term is bare minimum mondays oh that's what it is that's awful yes and they're proud of it they do just as little on monday as they can just to get by Uh, right so yeah then they're not then yeah interesting so then they're not connected to their purpose or their values so lisa that goes back to their collecting a paycheck how do I, as a 50-ish year old person, not kill them? Not, not kill them? Yes. And I'm being slightly facetious, but I'm also being a little yeah. bit real, too. Uh, I think that, you remember about a month ago, Jodie Foster, the yeah. actress, uh, commented yeah. on the generation. Uh all of us 50-year-olds don't get them, don't understand the 20-year-olds. And yeah, 
are frustrated beyond words with them sometimes, uh, both at home and at work. At uh, work, so, yeah. So I think it, if, yeah, I think you bring up a good point because if you ask that, every generation will hit a new generation, and there's always these like, oh, they don't want to work, they're not interested. Uh, they said this about the millennials as well, but I think there's this combination of they come in, they have certain values that were given. You know, they're they're the they're the tech generation, right? They want everything fast and quick, and they have more opportunities than we ever had. Um, so I, I I think that the key thing is is our generation has to learn from their generation, and then there's this melding where we find some middle ground. And I saw that with the millennials that the millennials also went through that process because the millennials had this thing of like, you know, I want I do things once and I've mastered it. And the reality is, no, in order to master the work we've done, it takes a little bit longer than one experience. So I think it's about what can we, how can we do mentorship in both ways? Because I don't know about you, but I have nephews that are young, that that are younger in their early 20s, and I can learn so much about them from technology. They're even my, even my husband's children, right? They teach me things that I don't know how to do technology-wise. So I think we have to show value. What is, we have to honor the value that they bring that maybe we don't have. Uh, yes, I certainly always will acknowledge that. The thing, though, Lisa, is I don't feel like they acknowledge the value that I bring to the table, or someone my age that you know actually has something to bring to the table. Not me, but you know, a smart guy. Yeah, and I, and I yeah, and I think this is where when we integrate our head and our heart and we really speak in an open way and open a dialogue, I think people have forgot to listen. We've become so polarized in our viewpoints. I'm right. You're wrong. That we've stopped communicating and dialoguing in a healthy way. And if we want to overcome some of the societal issues we have and the workplace challenges, we need to slow down a little bit and we need to start really listening and being present with people. Because when you're present with people, people want to learn and grow. It's built into our DNA. I, I truly believe that, and I've been doing this work for 34 years. All right. And I know some days it could be frustrating. I, I sense, Jim, your frustration. But I, but I encourage you to, to look at it from a different perspective when, next time you're in conversation. All right. So a lot of the terms you keep using integrated connected uh, all yes. in are i think implicitly talking about being in the office it's so hard to be connected to someone that you've never met never had a personal conversation with that you don't you're not going to do that online you know the water cooler is true. You do get to know people better by actually meeting them and rubbing into them on Monday morning and seeing that they have a hangover or not. You know, knowing when they're happy. You, you just so many things are not happening because we demand to work at home. Damn it! Remote jobs are up. You know, if you have a, a listing on a new job and you market as remote, you're going to get ten times the number of applicants if they have to be in the office. Uh, how do we stay connected when I don't ever see you? Yeah, so I think that's a, I think you're asking a really good point, and it means that we need to leave that time for chit chat when we're virtual. So our whole company is virtual, and we've been virtual for seven years. 
And one of the things that's really important is that if we're wanting to make it work, then when we get on the phone with somebody, we don't just go straight into business. We leave that time for personal connection and we leave that time for caring because that's an important thing. And sometimes it's the littlest things that make a difference. So, so I'll give you an example. One of my, one of my colleagues on my team um, just got married and she is one that's so organized and ahead and anticipates everything. So can you imagine she, I see, I pick up the phone, I go to call her for regular and I just see that she's absolutely shattered. And I say to her, what's going on? And she said, I went to go pick up my wedding dress for the fitting. And she said, the store went out of business. Right? So she's about a month away from her wedding. She was distraught. So I acknowledged her feelings. And they I have said, the I, dress? She, the dress was there, but it was like in a shop next door and they demanded payment, although the dress did not fit. So I sat with her. I talked to her. I said, look, your wedding day is the most important thing. We will, I will help you in any way possible for you to find the right dress. And we started to, once I acknowledged her emotions and feelings, and she just broke down and cried, and she's never done that before. And then afterwards, we came up with some ideas. And the next day, she had like, she said, I said, look, if you need to take a couple hours off the next day, you go do it and sort out your dress. And then she was able to, this other, these other people felt bad that were holding the dress and they found a seamstress that helped her and she was able to, she was able, they were able to fix the dress for her wedding because this was the wedding, the dress she really wanted. Lisa, have you I, ever seen the it. TV show Say Yes to the Dress? No, I haven't. It's a, it's a TV show about shopping for wedding dresses, unbelievably. Oh. And it's filmed right around the corner from here. So I can get you in to say yes to the dress. You know, I, I, the professionals are right around the corner. They're on the TV for right. God's sakes. Right. But the good news is it works, but what if I didn't handle that in the right way? Right. What if I just went, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that you can't do that, but I didn't really give, I didn't acknowledge her emotions or I didn't acknowledge how she felt. You know, she was, I mean, I've never seen her show that level of emotion. So I think that, yes, in person, is that always nicer? Absolutely. But we can cultivate those experiences by, as leaders, demonstrating them. You know, you know what it's like when you meet somebody and they immediately put you at ease and then you're able to, even if it's on the phone or video, that, that sense of, okay, I can open up a little bit. And I think we need to learn to put people at ease by being present with them. And we're always split screening with this conversation we're having in our head. What do I need to do next? What's happening there? Right? I need to get home and pick up the, ch the children. Right? We're not, we're, how often are we fully present with people? Never. Lisa, we only have about a minute yeah. left. And so much of our conversation is based on that uh, I know what I want. Right? The, I can only gain the power if I. Uh, <laughs> you know, have a personal, uh, maybe purpose is the word I'm looking yeah. for here. Yeah. But what do we say to so many of the people uh, that don't have a clue what their purpose is, especially when our generation, and maybe this isn't true for you, but so many people in, in, you know, the older generations have had 
what is it? 14 jobs and seven different careers. You know, we've all seen the statistics. Um, they could look at us and say, you've never had a purpose. You you've done 18 different things. You, You have no consistency or there's no purpose through that. But then again, we're sitting here condemning them because they don't have a purpose. And so many of them are still living at home in the basement. How do we handle, uh, yeah. People who don't have a clear purpose. Yeah, I think the the most important thing is, you know, purpose is not something that you wake up and it just comes to you. It's a process of self-discovery. And I think the message I would want to leave is don't be afraid to go on a self-discovery journey because a lot of the work I do with executives and from all the, you know, from the, the entry level to the top is so many people have such negative self-talk about themselves. And it would be really, I would encourage people to go to that inner journey because only in that inner journey will you find the true happiness that you're really looking for. Because when you, when you do that, then you can step out into the world and then you know how to navigate it. Because if you can't navigate your inner world, how in the world are you going to navigate the external world? Very true. It's impossible. Yep. It's, and that's, that's, my, that's my, I think, probably my most, maybe important message for the, for your audience today. And we need to take time to do that. We need to slow down and and get a sense of how we're feeling and how, and even listening to our intuition to be able to do that. It's right there for us to access if we're willing to listen. When I was a teenager, I was very self-aware and uh, unhappy and very few friends. And I realized that I didn't like myself. And then I realized, Mm. well, why would I have a friend if I didn't like me? Why would someone want to hang out with me if I don't want to hang out with me? And so, uh, very good point. It's a very good point. So if we, if we can create that self-compassion and self-love, then our external world starts to change. I always say when you change the dance, the person who you're dancing with, the whole, the whole relationship changes. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that because so many people feel that, Jim, but they don't want to articulate it. And I think if we're willing to articulate that experience, then more people are open up to, to move through their own pain because life is not easy. We go through, we go through, we have masks because life didn't always serve us up exactly what we needed. The author, Lisa Donnell's the book, The Human Advantage, I'm sorry, The Human Edge Advantage, Mastering the Art of Being All In. Lisa Donnell's, how do you want us to find you, follow you, get in touch, get a copy of the book? Sure. So you can get a copy of the book at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. You can also get in touch with me. You can find me on uh, lisadonnell.com. Or you can go to the humanedgeadvantage.com. In both of those places, you'll be able to find me. You can follow me on Instagram, uh, Lisa underscore Janelle. And um, I would ha- be so happy to have any conversations with people around this important work, around uh, really creating workspaces that can be motivating, engaging, and inspiring. And just for everyone, it's Danelle's, D-A-N-E-L-S, like Daniel's, but with no I. Danelle's. Correct. Lisa, thank you so <laughs> much for correct. being with us and enjoy Switzerland. And the, thank you. Uh, I hope you have a good snow season and I hope you ski and all that. Have a great time. Thanks for being with us and congratulations on the book.